Good morning again. So we've embarked on a journey into the heart of God, you know, with this new sermon series that we are in, God Unfiltered, trying to look at who God is and what God is like. And there are themes that are woven throughout Scripture. But it's interesting that in the passage that we started with last week, which we'll be pulling from in the next few weeks, um, that um, God reveals his character. He names it to, um, to Moses and the community, what he is like. And that phrase, those verses will be repeated throughout Scripture. And so today we're going to dive into what it is to have a compassionate God. And I want to share actually a resource with you today um, from the Bible Project. We've shown some of their stuff here before. Um, they're a nonprofit that offers resources to make the biblical story um, available and um, applicable to everyone everywhere. And so I just want to share this, this brief video with you because it highlights this passage from Exodus 34. And I really appreciate their insight into these verses. So you want to take a few moments and we'll this together before we dive even deeper into our sermon today. The Bible is a collection of many ancient Israelite scrolls. And together, they're telling one unified story. Now, if you look at the second scroll, Exodus, you'll find two important sentences. They're actually so important that they're referenced and requoted over 20 more times within the Bible itself. It must be important. What does it say? Yahweh, Yahweh, that's God's name, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. I can see why it's repeated so often. These attributes of God are really lovely. And the statement goes on. He maintains loyal love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he won't declare innocent the guilty. He will bring the iniquities of the fathers upon the children and grandchildren to the third and the fourth. Okay, hold on. This last part takes a bit of a turn. We're first talking about God's love, and suddenly it's about his judgment on grandkids. So is God merciful or vengeful? Yeah, great question. Let's see these words in a larger context by looking at something important in Genesis, the first scroll of the Bible. There, God chooses one family, the Israelites, from among the nations, and he promises that he's going to rescue the whole world through this family somehow. And Genesis ends with the family of Abraham in Egypt. Then the book of Exodus begins, and this book has two large movements. Right, okay, so this first movement of Exodus, God rescues Israel from slavery in Egypt. And in the second movement, God leads them to Mount Sinai, where they camp out for a year. And God invites this whole nation into a partnership called a covenant, so that they can be shaped by his values and character. And represent God to all the other nations. Exactly. Now this whole Mount Sinai movement in Exodus can be broken up into four literary units. First, there's the actual ceremony where the Israelites agree to be God's partners. And God sets up the terms of the relationship, starting with the 10 commandments. The first two are, don't give your allegiance to other gods and don't make any idol images of God. Seems simple enough. After that, God shows Moses detailed blueprints for building this sacred home so that God can come and live among them. All oh, right, and then comes a really long narrative about the building of that sacred home. But you miss something. Right in between these sections is the story that has our description about God's character. 
The story begins with Moses going up on the mountain, writing down the partner agreement, as the Israelites are at the base of the mountain, violating the first two commands. That's ridiculous. They're breaking the covenant vows while the ceremony is still going on. Yes. And so God is hurt and angry, and he warns Moses that this betrayal will keep on happening. God is ready to call it quits. But what about his promise to rescue the world through them? Yeah, exactly. This is what Moses brings up. And so what is God going to do? Should he end the partnership, which would be fair? Or will he be faithful to his promise to Abraham and show them mercy? Yeah, exactly. Now, look back at the words that we began with and you'll see they're about this very tension between God's mercy and his justice. Okay, so the statement opens like this. A God compassionate and gracious. In Hebrew, this line has three words that rhyme. El Rahum Dachanun. And the line overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness matches the first, as it also has three Hebrew words. Rav Chesed Ve'emet. Each of those lines have two attributes of God, and they surround a fifth attribute, that God is slow to anger. Right. Now, that's the first half of this description of God. Then comes the second half. God maintains loyal love for thousands. And how is he going to remain loyal to people who keep rebelling against him? By forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Ah, uh, but God's forgiveness doesn't mean people can just do whatever they want. Right. God's mercy is balanced in what follows. Yet he won't declare innocent the guilty. He'll bring the iniquities of the fathers upon the children and grandchildren to the third and the fourth. The third and the fourth what? Well, it's referring to generations of people who repeat their ancestors' rebellion against God. They'll get what they deserve. But notice, this small number of generations contrasts that massive number up above. God's loyal love to thousands. Right. And then check this out. God's forgiveness of iniquity in this line is contrasted with his justice on iniquity in this line. Okay, and all those lines are surrounding a central line here about God's justice. He will not declare innocent the guilty. So while God is slow to anger, he is also just. Right. This is the tension that these two sentences are exploring. How does a faithful and loyal God deal with such a rebellious people? This is the challenge God faces in this story, and it's the same challenge he faces in the whole biblical story as he works to rescue the world through this family. With that in mind, we can take a closer look at these five attributes that God declares about himself to Moses. A God compassionate, and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. And we'll see how each one leads us deeper into the character of God and into the story of the Bible. I think they do a great job of illustrating um, this cycle, this pattern that ends up kind of running through scripture between God's gracious compassion and the people of Israel's kind of rebellion. It's kind of this, this cycle that keeps going on, that they turn from God, and in spite of their rejection of God, his compassion remains a constant force in their lives. Now, God is angry with their actions, which are usually hurtful to other people, and always, though, you know, this is the thing. We sometimes put a but here, but there should be an and. God is angry with their actions and always offers a way home always offers them an option to turn back. And their second chances with God abound. 
because of what we're going to dig in today is his compassion. And the Hebrew word for compassion is rahun. And it really is linked to the word womb, like where a baby gestates. And it, it emphasizes kind of the depths and the intensity of the, mo the emotion, like it comes from your very depths. And this is a key element in understanding God throughout scripture, is this rahun, this compassion that God has. And we're gonna dig into this today because when we see this cycle, like God is continually dealing with poor behavior on the part of this people group that he's made an agreement with. It, it's not something he's imposed on them, it's something they've agreed to with him. And so he holds them accountable to it, but also always offers the opportunity to mend the relationship by turning back to him. And so kind of the question I always have when I'm reading through all these stories of God's continual pursuit and offering second chances to people who just turn their backs on him is, will he continue to let this cycle go on forever? And the answer to that question is found in the person of Jesus his life, his death, his resurrection, becomes the answer to that question. Because not only does Jesus answer that question with his sacrifice, but he also demonstrates the radical nature of God's compassion, that he breaks that cycle, offering the ultimate rescue plan for everyone, and demonstrating that compassion isn't earned and is rather a outpouring of God's unfathomable love and we cannot fully understand it. We simply live into it. And Jesus himself will give us a powerful illustration that we're going to explore today of God's compassion. And it's a teaching that's found in Luke's gospel. And in his gospel, Luke focuses on some key things that will help you understand this a little bit better. But Luke is focused on how Jesus is Israel's Messiah and that he is there to announce the good news of God's kingdom to the poor that he is God's true prophet to Israel. And when we hit this point in this um, part of Luke's gospel, which comes to us um, from Luke 15, verses 11 through 32, that Jesus is on a road trip to Jerusalem where he and his disciples will join thousands of Israelites to celebrate the feast of the Passover. Now, Luke is really drawing kind of our eye to this road trip of Jesus's to connect it to the Israelites' journey with Moses thousands of years before from, from Mount Sinai. So kind of this mountain to Jerusalem, and these connections are important to see. That as, you know, Jesus is going from a mountaintop to Jerusalem, so did Moses from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land. And then later, generations later, there will be King David from Moses' line to establish Jerusalem as their capital. And so we can see this, that Luke is highlighting this so that people see Jesus as a new Moses and a new David, God's ultimate prophet and God's ultimate king. And as this king, Jesus starts to create communities of people who are learning to live in a totally new way where greed is turned to generosity, where anger becomes forgiveness. This is, this is a transformation. This is a community that will be transformed by the presence of Jesus. And in these Jesus communities, outsiders, 
are always welcome. Outsiders are welcomed in. And this really causes a lot of anger on the part of some people, particularly the religious leaders. You know, that if he's really God's prophet, why is he welcoming sinners and eating with them? That's not what God's prophets do, right? That's what God's prophets do, exactly, is they welcome people into the kingdom of God. Because these religious leaders, they don't get it. So Jesus begins to tell them this famous parable. And it's probably one that you've heard before, even heard here. It's the prodigal son. And it is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. And allow me to retell this story for us and remind us not only of its kind of timeless truths concerning the heart of God, but also to just dig into what it is to experience God's compassion. Now, I want you to pause here and imagine with me living in a small village, probably very much like some of our, our tight-knit communities where everybody knows everyone and everybody knows everyone's business. And in this town, there is a father with two sons. And his oldest son, he's the responsible one. He's the one who gets straight A's and takes out the trash. He's the do-getter who's going to go straight into the family business, no questions asked. But it's the younger son that Jesus turns our eye to immediately. This son, this younger son, he is full of life and dreams and aspirations that cannot be contained by this little village. Thank you very much. He's a little bit reckless, and he wants to go off and see the world. So he goes to his father and he asks for his inheritance early. It's pretty, pretty bold. Would you have the guts to do that? Hey, Dad, I want my money now. But that's who this son is. And so he chooses to take his inheritance, and he embarks on a journey of self-discovery. He's going to find himself. He's going to make his own way in this world because he is made for more than just this small-town life. Well, he's a free spirit, and he parties it up, and he is soon out of money. And then add to this and his circumstances that there's a famine in the land. So now he has really no money, and food is scarce. And this younger son finds himself working in a pig slop for someone else. And as he is tending to somebody else's livestock, eating what the pigs eat because he has so very little and is so very hungry, he realizes life would be better back home. At least there, being a servant in my dad's house would be preferable to this. And his dreams have really died in that muddy pen. And so he heads home. He treks back and he is rehearsing his apology the whole way. Like, Dad, I'm so sorry. No, no. Dad, Dad, you're so wonderful. You know, you can just imagine him the whole way there just thinking through what are the right words to say that will get my dad to take me back. And I want us to see this, though, before we go any further, is he's not going home because he misses his family. Maybe he misses the home cooking. But he doesn't miss his family. He's not going out of like this renewed love for his father. He's going home because he's desperate. He's got nothing else. He wants to survive. And so keep this in mind as we start to look at the father's reactions to his son. That his father, who has been at home this whole time, possibly even thinking, man, my son, he probably didn't survive this famine. He's probably gone. But he is hopeful. He's hopeful that he is wrong in his assumptions. He's hopeful that 
One day he'll see his son coming down the road to their house. And one day that happens. He sees his son from a distance. And he is filled with compassion, as Jesus describes it. This father who has been, you know, effectively rejected by his son is filled for compassion for that same son as he sees him on the horizon. He has been watching for him, longing for this son's return, eager for it, but knowing that he could not force it because love is not forced or coerced. So when he sees his lost son from a distance, now let's keep in mind some of the attire that men wore at this time. They wore long robes and, and cloaks and things. When he sees his lost son from a distance, he hikes up his skirts and he takes off down that road. He cannot wait for this younger man to make it to his doorstep. And he runs on his old man legs with his skirts hiked up because he cannot wait a second more to be able to embrace his son, to wrap him in his arms and kiss him. This father, who is probably well-known in the community, respected, disregards his dignity to embrace his long-lost son. The son who asked for his inheritance early, which effectively was telling his dad, I wish you were dead. Life would be so much better, dad, for me if you were dead. Give me my money. This dad, this father does not hold on to anger or resentment. Instead, he is so excited to see his son. He is joyful. He is not looking for an apology. He won't even hear it. He's not looking for any justification. All those words that son rehearsed on the way home are for nothing because the father is overjoyed to have him home, showing us that love is unconditional and love is forgiving. And again, that son didn't come home because he was so missing his father. He came home to survive. And the thing is, his father is perfectly fine with that. Just come home. The father just wants him home. And once this wayward child is home, the father throws a party. Like he not only says, hey, come on in, let's get you cleaned up. He throws him a banging party, a celebration. And here is where we are reintroduced to another character, the elder son. Now, he has not seen the happy reunion. He has been working all day long, and he comes home to a kegger after a long day at work, and he is mad, like mad when a toddler is told no, you know, just angry and, oh, can't handle it. And he represents, I think, for a lot of us, sometimes the resentment that we have in life that he struggles to understand his father's compassion, the depths of that compassion. And while the prodigal son is welcomed with open arms by his father, his older brother is struggling to comprehend not only the love that his father freely extends, but also just, you're going to give him a party? His anger and his resentment is just boiling up in him. Resentment that... I was the good kid. I did what you asked of me. I did everything. I have worked beside you. I have worked in the family business. I have put aside my own wants and needs to serve you. I stayed. He left. I stayed. I did what you asked of me, and I've never gotten a party. This is his reaction to his father's compassion and welcome home. 
he, he cannot stomach this, this idea of celebrating his brother's return, this brother that they probably wrote off as dead. Why does the ungrateful brat who spent all his money get a blowout party? I never got a party. This isn't fair. And I'm not so sure that it's the party that makes him so mad as it's the compassion, the generous compassion of his father. Now, his father was the one who was wronged. His father was the one who was insulted and wished dead. But the brother isn't upset about that. He's not upset on behalf of his dad. He's upset on his behalf. What? Why haven't you done this for me? He's so resentful. And so often I think... I respond this way to people, that when I see God's grace extended to others, I just, I want to make sure they're worthy, right? Like, we mock jail house conversions, don't we? We see those stories as manipulation, not God's grace at work. We look often as, at forgiveness as weakness. We, we lack compassion for others. We continue often to punish people for their mistakes, even if they have done the work of repairing that mistake. We often will offer a, you made your bed, now lie in it. You suck it up, buttercup. This is usually the internal conversation I have with myself, by the way. See, we are challenged to look beyond what our world tells us is acceptable when we enter into God's kingdom. See, the world says we are only worth what we accomplish. We are only worth what we have earned, and that includes love, that we have to earn acceptance and belonging, and that we really need to be worthy of compassion. We better have a good story for it, right? Or not, because true compassion is not earned. Because if it needed to be earned, it would not be compassion. And in this story, this, this is how Jesus describes the compassion of God to the religious leaders. It's the Father's compassion that really challenges us, that invites us to cultivate this spirit of forgiveness and understanding. And that's really hard in a world that prioritizes success, independence, that when we sit with this parable of the prodigal son and the resentful brother, that we are invited to embrace humility, compassion, and gratitude. It, that reminds us that no matter how far we have maybe strayed or gone in this world, there is a compassionate father ready to welcome us home with open arms who is watching the horizon for our return. Jesus tells this story so that the religious leaders will better understand God's heart, understand that God welcomes outsiders who they are trying to push out. Jesus says, no, God welcomes them in. God looks at them as sons and daughters and said, come sit at the table with me. We thought you were lost. We thought you were dead. You are home. It is so good to see you. So often we are like that prodigal son, that we continually turn from God, that we demand our part and we want to leave. We want no part of the family that God has offered to us. We wish he were dead and often act like he is. And when we are desperate, only when we are desperate, do we head home, do we turn back to God. That is really what repentance means, y'all. It means turning back to God, that we humble ourselves and we turn back towards God, recognizing that we have this deep need for him and his mercy. And God 
like the Father in our story, is, is waiting and watching for us and runs to greet us with open arms. He just wants you home. He just wants all of us home. See, every moment, every day, we have this opportunity to, to come home to God. And now last week I told you that we are going to be digging into these characteristics of God. But one thing I'm not going to do to you is to give you five simple steps to be more compassionate or more loving or more forgiving. I could, but it's really not effective. Five steps ain't going to get you there, y'all. Because for myself, I have found in those places where I need to offer compassion and I struggle to do so, I don't know, maybe like the elder son, the older brother, in those places where I struggle to offer compassion are usually places that I need to receive more of God's compassion. See, we cannot pour from an empty cup. Now, we can muscle our way through a lot of things. We can white knuckle our way in. Anybody who has worked in retail or food service, y'all got this down, right? Or you didn't keep a job. You built up a tolerance for dealing with the public nicely. But usually you went home and then began to publicly with your people complain about how people are rude, annoying, and stupid, right? I've had those conversations. That what we really wanted to do was to tell them off that we didn't need their business rather than refund their meal. That strangely enough, they ate the whole thing up. See, that's not really compassion though. That's keeping your job. So instead of trying harder, I want you to try softer. I want you to first receive from God so that you can offer true compassion to people. It doesn't mean that this isn't going to be a challenge. It's often harder to receive than give. Even though we are told it is better to give than receive, it is harder to receive than give often. Because giving, giving really puts us in a place of control and power. While receiving, it's really vulnerable and humbling. When we give, we, we often feel this empowerment that, oh, I'm fixing a problem. I'm helping this poor person out. On the other hand, when we receive, not take, by the way, when we receive, it requires openness on our part, a willingness to kind of acknowledge our limitations. Accepting the grace of God, for instance, involves recognizing our dependence and embracing a sense of humility. It's really this reminder that we're not self-sufficient, that we can't be totally independent, that actually in those moments of receiving, that we recognize our interconnectedness as well as our interdependence on God and one another. So my invitation for us on how are we going to, to take this parable to heart, to allow an experience with God's compassion to transform us into more compassionate people is actually I have two things for you I want you to do this week. First, I have a prayer for you, and I want you to do this daily. You can take a picture of it on the screen or write it down, but I want you to say this prayer every day. Lord, help me to receive your compassion for me today. Lord, help me receive your compassion for me today. That's simple line. This should be a daily practice for you. And I want you to also take note of what you experience throughout this week. One, I hope that God will just shower you with moments of experiences of compassion. But I also hope that you're going to pay attention. Because so often we don't see what God is doing because we are not paying attention. 
So I want you to pay attention. And second, this is the harder part, trust me. I want you to grab a prayer card out of your bucket. I should hear noise. Grab a prayer card out of your bucket. Do it. Or you may take your phone out. I will give you two options there. And I want you to write on that prayer card or text in a prayer for yourself. So it should go something like, I need prayer for fill in the blank. And you can do that on that card. You can text that into our number. But I want you to make it personal. It doesn't have to be a confession. It can just simply be something that matters to you. Because when it's personal, we are vulnerable. And it's when we are vulnerable that we are able to receive and experience the compassion. Be real with your request, okay? Do you struggle with anxiety or worry? Ask for prayer for that. Do you need courage to reconcile a relationship? Ask for prayer for that. Are you struggling as a parent? Ask for prayer for that. Now, don't ask for prayer for your kids. Ask for prayer for yourself as a parent. Because God's honest truth, you're not going to change them unless you yourself are changed. Do it. Write it on the card. Text it in. Do not allow yourself to leave today without putting yourself in this position to receive prayer, to offer this to God and to the community, to experience compassion we will pray for one another. Now, if you filled out that card, you're welcome to actually put it in one of the Give Hope stations, or you are also welcome to hang it on the prayer wall as you leave today. If you texted it in, it's there. It'll be prayed over. My prayer for you this week is that you'll be courageous with this, and that in that you will experience the compassion of God, that you experience, you experience the embrace of the Father, saying, and hearing from him. I am so glad that you are home. Welcome home. I've missed you, and I'm so grateful that you are home. My prayer is that you hear this this week. Amen.